children age three to first grade, if you would go to children's church and join your teacher in the back, that would be great. If this is your child's first time in children's church, please go with them. Uh, and so you can see where they are getting their lesson. Now, if you're able, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. From Philippians. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that as we look at your word, as we consider what you have said to us, that we would join in glorying and enjoying the greatness of our Savior, as this text means to lead us to do. And so we pray that distractions or anything that would keep us from hearing your word and enjoying and savoring Jesus, that you would remove them from our minds and by your spirit that you would lead us to worship and enjoy him. We pray this in his name. Amen. So um, Jeff and I visited uh, community groups a few weeks ago, and uh, one of the questions I got, which was unrelated to community groups, was, when is Deuteronomy going to be over? Um, it was clarified quickly, I will say, person goes unnamed, um, that, no, 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 we love Deuteronomy, more Deuteronomy. Um, so I don't know what your experience of Deuteronomy has been like. I will say, for me, it has been... Probably one of the most challenging books that we've done, but also perhaps one of the most rewarding that we've had together um, since I've been here at least. Um, and whether it's good news or bad news to you, this is our last Sunday in the Deuteronomy series. Um, since January, if you've been with us, we have been looking at this section of Deuteronomy in chapters 12 through 26, considering these instructions that again and again have pointed us in the way of love. 
we said early on in January that these instructions, they, they are not obscure. This is not an ancient code of do's and don'ts that's functionally irrelevant in the modern world. This is instruction that is meant to teach us the way of love. First, the way of loving God, what it actually means and what it actually looks like to love God, to know Him, to worship Him, to rejoice in Him, to trust Him, but then also what it looks like to love other people. We, we've considered these instructions, and, and I hope, like me, you have found yourselves at times just mesmerized by the specificity and, and the thoughtfulness of what it looks like to actually love other people, as we have considered things like politics and, and our relationship to the poor and the vulnerable, as we've thought about sex and money and, and economics and, and even this creation, this world. This morning, I want us to consider how Deuteronomy and its vision points us to Jesus, especially as, you know, we're, we're coming into Holy Week and we're coming to this time in the church year where we are going to think about the Son of God who came to suffer and die for us and for our salvation. And so to do this this morning, uh, I want us to consider four things. What is Deuteronomy's, what Deuteronomy's vision for life requires, how that is an enormous problem for us, how that vision is fulfilled in Jesus, and what that means for us. So what Deuteronomy's vision for life requires, how it's a problem, how Jesus fulfills it, and then what that means for us. So first, what Deuteronomy's vision for life requires? And here's the question that I'm, that I'm trying to get us to ask. If we were to live out Deuteronomy's vision for loving God and loving other people, what would that require? And what numerous writers on Deuteronomy point out is that for someone to actually live this way, to live this vision of life would require sacrificial love. It would require giving up time, money, property, power. It requires self-denial, self-restraint, the willingness to relinquish, to hold all that one has as a gift from God, and therefore not something to cling to, but something to hold with an open hand. The obedient life, as one writer put it, is a life of faithful dying. It is a life of sacrificial love. Let's just think about where we've been in Deuteronomy and, and, and see how this is so true, right? You might remember <clears throat> the laws related to the Sabbath command. So Deuteronomy 15, the command to rest, and how it was the responsibility of the community to make sure that all could experience rest. You know, so if someone was poor or had run into hard times, God's people were called to be open-handed. And, and this was not just, you know, like, like charity, like, you know, if, if you want to do it, great. If you don't, no big deal. No, this was a command. Like, this is what the people were called to. Don't cling to the gifts and privileges that you've been given, but rather hold them with an open hand that others might experience rest. Or related to this, there was that law of release every, every seven years, this release that would happen, where someone maybe had run into a hard time and they had to become an indentured servant to pay for, you know, food and, and to have shelter. But 
on the seventh year, they were to be released and their debt was to be forgiven. And Deuteronomy specifically anticipates the tension that this will create because what happens when that law of release is really near, like, like it's coming up next year, but your brother is in need, and so what you lend him, you're probably not going to get back, and you're probably going to not get enough work to cover your costs. You're probably going to incur some kind of loss. And God says, don't harden your heart, don't shut your hand, be generous, give, and trust me. And really, we could think about every topic basically we've covered, whether we're talking about a vision for sex that its goal is about building up the household and building up the community rather than focused on individual personal desire and fulfillment or whether we're talking about a way of economic life that seeks to bend to the vulnerable rather than privilege the power, powerful and wealthy, or whether we're talking about all the instructions that we looked at of what it looks like to care, honor, and love other human beings, what it looks like to help a neighbor who's in need, what it looks like to help the vulnerable, what it looks like to help the runaway slave that is fleeing, And on and on again, Deuteronomy has shown us that this vision of life is one that is characterized by sacrificial love. It requires sacrificial love. But that's a problem. It's an enormous problem, if we're honest, right? If we know our hearts, why would I give up my power when I could keep it? Why would I give up my land, my time, my money, my energy? Why would I do that when I could hold on to it and use it to further enhance my life? Why would I do that? And Israel ultimately fails to keep this vision of life. As the story of the Old Testament goes on, eventually God's prophets come and they come almost as like covenant prosecuting lawyers coming to Israel and saying, you have failed, you have failed God, you have broken covenant, you have failed to live sacrificial love in your communities and in the wider society, you failed to love the poor and the vulnerable and and your neighbor, you failed to do justice, the wealthy and the powerful have kept hold of what they had and the poor and the vulnerable and those in need have gone without. And this problem is evident in Paul's day as well as he's writing to Philippians. So, you know, transitioning a little bit to Philippians 2 here, one scholar suggests that the background behind what uh, Paul says in this passage about Jesus, particularly uh, verses 5 and following, is a well-known Greco-Roman custom called speeches of praise. So, those in high status in Rome competed in these things called honors races. Sounds kind of cool, you know, honors races, speeches of praise. They, they would recall the various important roles and prestigious public offices that an individual held. And sometimes these would be like inscribed on a building or somewhere where everyone could see like this is what this person has done. And this practice in Rome was then kind of like copied throughout the empire, especially in cities that were very influenced by Rome and its empire, Philippi being one of those, a very important colony city. And it kind of created this trickle-down effect where not only the elites in Rome, 
but everyone throughout the empire competed in their local towns for honor and status. And it worked out down the pecking order of society into uh, local trade, trade associations as well as religious groups. In other words, there was a whole culture and vision of life that communicated life is about ascent. It's about going up. It's about getting more honor and more status and using whatever you have to keep climbing higher. And this obviously isn't just like a first century problem or an Israelite problem. This is a human problem. And this human problem goes all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 3 when Adam sought to be like God he wanted to ascend. He, he wanted power and authority and, and autonomy. He wanted to ascend. He wanted to be like God in all the ways that he was not meant to be like God. And he did this by reaching out his hand and grasping after the fruit. And ever since, humanity has been doing the same. This is why we want more power and control and security, but why that's always a moving target. It's never attainable. In a sense, the more you get, the more you realize you can lose, and so it's just a little further down. We want to be like God in all the wrong ways, power, control, security, so that we don't have to rely and trust upon God. This is also why we overschedule, why we overwork, why we try to do more and more, because we don't want limits. We want to be everywhere, do everything, and just keep speeding up life. We want to be omnipresent, omnicompetent. We want to be like God in all the ways that we were never meant to be. Think about the dream life that you want. When you imagine the good life, is it not some version of ascending do you, like me, know that feeling of trying to grasp after more? You feel like you need more, just a little more, a little more money, a little more importance, a little more prestige, whatever, a little more whatever. Because your vision of life, because what you imagine to be the highest form of existence possible for you, it's about ascending. This is the very thing that Paul is trying to subvert. He overturns this whole way of thinking in this passage and what he says about Jesus. It's not just that humanity has sinned. It's that our whole ideal about life is wrong. Our whole impulse of what we think we want and what we need and the good life is wrong. What we think the highest form of existence for us is wrong. It doesn't matter if we like and agree with what Deuteronomy says. Fallen humanity from Adam on won't live it because it is at odds with what we think the vision of life is. But this is the vision of sacrificial love that we see in Philippians 2 in Jesus. If you don't have the text out, it, it, pull, pull it out with me. We're, we're going to look at some of these verses. Look at verse 6. Jesus before he came into this world as a human being and was given the name Jesus of Nazareth, 
Before that, he existed as the eternal Son who was equal with God, being in the form of God. The Son would have shared in all of the glory, all of the privileges, all of the honor, the high status of being equal with God. But it was precisely this that he didn't cling to, that he didn't grasp onto, that he didn't use for his own advantage. Rather, verse 7, he emptied himself. Not meaning that he ceased to be God, but as this passage clearly shows, the emptying meant taking on of a lower status. He descended, as it were, from the high place of status and honor to the low place. Literally, it says, taking the form of a slave. So, the one who existed in the form of God, verse 6, takes the form of a slave. The one who existed in the highest place possible descends to the lowest place imaginable. God takes on flesh. The Son takes on humanity. And even here, He descends further, going lower, humbling Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Death by crucifixion in the ancient world was so terrible not just because of the agonizing suffering and torturous death that happened to the victim, but because it was the instrument of greatest public shame. The Roman philosopher Cicero said this of crucifixion, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. It was the punishment seen as fitting for a slave, for the most wretched of society. One scholar who is trying to explain the significance of these verses writes this, the preexistent son regarded equality with God not as excusing him from the task of redemptive suffering and death, but actually as uniquely qualifying him for that vocation, for that calling. The real humiliation of the incarnation and the cross is that it was the one who was God himself and who never during the whole process stopped being God could embrace such a vocation. Right? Think about it. How is it possible that the the highest being, the greatest being, could descend so low? The scholar goes on to write, the real emphasis is not simply a new view of Jesus, it is a new understanding of God. Against the age-old attempts of human beings to make God in their own arrogant and self-glorifying image, the cross reveals the truth about what it meant to be God. When you gaze at and consider and think about the cross the deepest and strongest impression that you are to have is this is what God is like. He is the God of self-giving love. This past week, um, I was listening to a Sandra McCracken album. We do a number of her songs here, if you're, if you're not familiar with her. This was an album, it was pretty old, it's about 15, 20 years ago. 
And in it, she tells a story about where she grew up in uh, Missouri. The story is about these two boys, these brothers, who lived in one of the communities down by the Mississippi River. This was during a time where there had been uh, some real uh, historic and just terrible flooding on the Mississippi, and these two brothers went out to play, as they often did, uh, down by the river, bla- river bank, playing down by the sand. It was in an area where it had been blocked off by sandbags that, you know, had held everything up for years, but on this particular day, the levee weakened, broke, and these boys found themselves in quicksand and starting to sink. The sand that had held them up was now liquefying, and they were going down into it. When they didn't come home, the parents and eventually rescue workers went out to look for them. And when they found first the youngest brother, he was barely alive, and he was up to his neck in sand. And they began to dig him out. And they asked, where is your brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. As they were being swallowed, the older brother in that moment had the impulse to descend. He chose to sink, to get beneath to support his brother with his dying body, to sacrifice himself to give his life that his brother might have life. Philippians 2 says that impulse of self-giving love is at the heart of God. This is what God has done in Jesus Christ. He has descended He has got beneath us. He has bore our sins in his body. He has gotten beneath us that he might lift us up and give us life. And the logic of what follows in verses 9 through 11 of this passage is that God the Father, in an essence, says, yes, yes, this is it. This is what it means to be equal with God. This is the true and right expression of divinity. Because Self-giving love is at the heart of God. The Son's incarnation, His taking on of flesh, His death and His suffering on the cross, far from being at odds with what it meant to be divine, was the perfect expression of it. What does this mean for us? I will say um, this, I think I can honestly say there is not a text that I have ever had to preach that has been more personally challenging to me. And I feel like I am barely scratching the surface of the kind of life that this text calls us to. Because as amazing as this text is and what it tells us about who our God is and what it has done, if you actually look at the wider context, the reason Paul writes what he does is because he wants us to adopt this vision for our lives. Three times in our text, Paul refers to this way of thinking, this vision for life, what you see in your English text as mind. Verse 2, where Paul writes, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
And also in verse 5 where he writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying you must develop this way of thinking, this way of thinking which is in Jesus, and if you belong to Jesus, is yours through being united to him. This mindset, this vision of life is ours through Jesus, but it is a mindset that has to be cultivated. Because we, like the Philippian believers, live in a world and in a culture that forms us at an intuitional level, at a gut level, that life is about going up. It's about ascent. It's about accomplishing more. It's about climbing further. No, says Paul, would you look at Jesus? If Jesus is equal with God and perfectly expresses what life, what, what God, what's at God's heart, then that's what life is about. This is the God who created everything, who created the world. Do you want to be like God in all the ways that you're meant to be? Do you want to experience the joy of living in harmony with your Creator? Then cultivate cultivate this vision of life, this way of thinking that reflects the self-giving, sacrificial love of God. In a dog-eat-dog world, in a world where so often life is viewed as a zero-sum game, if you win, I lose. If I win, you lose. In a world where self-love and self-expression and pursuing one's ambitions is viewed as just necessary to flourishing if you're going to have a good life, Paul says, do you know anything of the comfort of belonging to Jesus? Do you know anything of His love? Have you experienced the work of the Spirit in your heart? Do you know any of these things? Complete my joy and embrace the same vision for life. Don't look to your own interests. Look to those of others. Look at Jesus Christ. Look at His life. Look at His vision. Practice that because you belong to Him. Um, just a few kind of closing applications, thoughts. You know, some of you may be in places where life has not turned out the way that you wanted it to or the way that you envisioned it would. You had some vision of being at a certain place, of attaining something, of arriving, and it's just not happened. This vision can transform your life because wherever you're at, where can you sacrificially love others? How might you descend and get beneath them to love and support them? It could be maybe your kids. It could be in your family. It could be in your job or in your community or at a place, at here at Trinity. In other words, you don't have to ascend for your life to work. Some of us have attained a high level of status and power and means, and that's why we live here. It's not wrong that we're here, but the question is, now that we're here, what are we going to do with it? How will we hold it? Will we grasp it? Will we hold it tightly? Will we use it to climb further and ascend further? Or will we use whatever abilities, whatever power, whatever wealth and means, will we use it not considering it something to be used for our own advantage, but something to be used as a calling to sacrificially love others. If that's you, you don't have to live the anxious existence of always trying to climb higher and always having to get more and more. You can actually be freed to love. 
As you make decisions this week, this year, and the ongoing years, financial decisions, decisions about jobs and careers, decisions about investing time and, and energy, all sorts of decisions, what vision is going to guide those decisions? If you have kids, what vision are you going to seek to instill and nurture your kids in? Jesus Christ perfectly lived out and expressed what was at the heart of God, self-giving love. And if that's true, if at the heart of God is self-giving love, and this is the God who made everything, then you will never find what you're looking for in this life until that vision becomes yours. Will you this morning not only receive and rest upon Christ as He's offered to you in the gospel for salvation, but will you receive His vision for life, which is yours through faith in Him?